0: The question Justice, radical left, who is on your list, Joe? Will you tell us how much you paid in federal income taxes in 2016 and 2017? Millions of dollars. He says he's smart because
1: he can take advantage of the tax code. And he does take advantage of the tax code. I Just wear, wear
0: masks when needed. When needed, I wear masks. Okay, let me ask. I don't have, I don't wear masks like him every time you see him he's got a mask he could be speaking 200 feet away from it he shows up with the biggest mask i've ever seen between 750 and thousand people they are dying when he was presented with that number he said it is what it is well it is what it is because you are who you are are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups sure.
2: and to say that they need to stand down Stand
0: back and stand by, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, somebody's
1: got to do something about Antifa and the left. You get the final word, Mr. Well, it's hard to get any word in with this clown.
0: If it's a fair election, I am 100% on board. These people aren't equipped to handle it, number one. Number two, they cheat. They cheat. Hey, they found ballots in a waste paper basket three days ago
1: fact is I will accept it and he will too. You know why? Because once the winner is declared after all the all the ballots are counted, all the votes are counted,
2: that'll be the end of it. That'll be the end of it. This is America Unfiltered. A fresh, raw look at American politics, foreign policy, and media. With me, Liam Kennedy in Dublin,
0: and me, Scott Lucas in Birmingham in the UK.
2: Barroom brawl, dumpster fire, world wrestling federation fight, schoolyard fight, car crash, train crash, shit show, national humiliation, a disgrace, unseemly, a joke, un-American, unhinged, pathetic, nasty. These are just some of the terms widely used in the aftermath of the first presidential debate as Americans struggle for words to describe it. The only thing we can say with certainty about this debate has to be in the negative. It wasn't presidential. It wasn't a debate. Scott, what was it?
0: <laughs> well, I think the best description was a dumpster, dumpster fire inside a car crash inside a train wreck. But let's try to get a bit wider on this because the thing is, is that it was spectacle, which all presidential debates were. It was the type of spectacle which may have crossed the line into being. Uh, tragic and horrific. But after the spectacle, after the circus, someone's got to clean up the mess and figure out where the show goes next. And I think that there's two levels of this. I think the immediate level of this was, it's just damn all of them. You know, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, everybody is just dragging this electoral process in America into disrepute. But then I think it swung just a bit. And that is, is that if this was a train wreck, it was Donald Trump that blew up the tracks from the very first moment. That doesn't completely get Biden off the hook. He was rattled by Trump coming at him with attack, attack, attack. But I think a couple things happened. The first is, is that people started to see that Biden was reacting in large part because of Trump's interruptions, including the interruption of the moderator, Chris Wallace, disinformation and the attacks on Biden's family. Which leads to the second thing, there were moments, and it wasn't in like the sound bites that initially came out, and indeed the ones that you might have heard at the start of this program, but it was in sort of wider clips that people started to point out, which was when Biden was able to speak to camera to the American people and not at Trump, he was able to make some points on issues. They weren't in depth, he didn't have time, but for example, the need to save Obamacare and prevent more than 20 million Americans losing their insurance I think that will have rung with some folks. I think he did have a passage on the pandemic where he notes the death toll now above 205,000, more than 7 million cases, and then turns Trump's line against him. It is what it is because you are who you are. And I think this call for decency, equity, and justice around the social and racial issues raised by Black Lives Matter, look, a lot of folks may not have noticed that, but for people of color out there. I think that rings as well. And at the personal level, there's a, that inversion of Trump's attacks when he says, I stand by my son, Hunter Biden, right? And invoked, of course, his late son, Beau. And Hunter Biden, who's recovering from drug addiction, he made that very clear. You know, I'm not going to abandon him because of that. And it's notable that on social media, some folks are picking up on that at a personal level and, and responding to it. And then the other thing beyond it, which plays, I think, in Biden's favor, if only in terms of a victory by disqualification, is that Trump, because he brought nothing positive to the table, he was so focused on attack, it opened up the space, especially given his slip, that the one headline he gets out of this is this endorsement of white supremacy groups, including the Crowd Boys, with the uh, stand back, but stand by for action line, which turns Trump's tactic of culture wars against him. And, you know, Trump's on the defensive over that.
2: It's a good read, Scott. Um, one other thing on that just is, is the question of where are we going? I mean, in part just of this tradition of presidential debates. I mean, there's a lot of folks now saying, we finally have to do something about this. We have to change some of the regulations around this or some of the conventions. On the other hand, I have to say, you know, I started off with that litany of outrage of all of these comments. And I, even as I read them, I'm thinking to myself, where have these people been for four years? This is Trump. This is what he does. If you follow his Twitter feed, this was just the Twitter personality manifested on the stage. So, you know, I, you know have, have Democrats not run out of pearls to keep clutching is what I keep wondering. You know, I mean, wake up here and smell the coffee. It's what he does. And this is what the next five weeks are going to be like. So do you think the Democrats have to pivot to deal with this? Do you think they're reading it OK? In other words, do you think Joe Biden can stay seven or eight points ahead? Well, let's break
0: this down first of all by talking about the debates, because the media missed a key point here. On both here in the UK and on the US side of this. And that is, the next debate is not a Trump-Biden debate. The next debate is the vice presidential debate between Kamala Harris and Mike Pence. And that's going to be a very different style debate. Pence is not Trump in his approach. Kamala Harris is sharper than Biden, although I thought Biden was okay. And that means that you're going to get possibly that looking for issues you know, as much as we can. But also the idea that this brings us back to some type of, as it were, exchange, rather than just simply a Trump attack fest. Now, we'll see where we are after that next week. I can tell you what's not going to happen. Uh, it, Joe Biden is not going to cancel on the next two debates. Uh, that was a Trump line that was being spun because they would like to force him out because they'll say he's weak, he's old, he can't take it. And there will probably be a large amount of Americans that will tune into the second presidential debate because, People like watching trash TV if that's the way that it goes. So there's a lot of sound and fury around this. And I think the important thing is not to keep focusing debate, debate, debate. It is which issues are going to have resonance over these next four and a half weeks. Uh, We've got white supremacy, which is going to run for a couple of days. But then do we get back to coronavirus? Do we get back to the economy Or can the Trump campaign get some type of look in with the Supreme Court nomination or play that culture wars card? The thing about the debate this week is Biden didn't need to move the needle because he's seven to eight points ahead nationally. He's ahead in 10 of the 13 swing states, and he only needs to win six of them. In other words, it was Trump that needed to pull some folks in that are beyond his mythical base. And I don't think so far that he will have gotten many folks who are undecided And definitely, I don't think he will have shifted any from the Democratic column.
2: Yeah, you used a great uh, phrase there, uh, Scott, which I hadn't heard the other commentators use, sound and fury. That's exactly what we're dealing with. And and, you know, if we're going to work out what's happening within that sound and fury, yes, people should listen to us over the coming weeks, because as you said, we'll try and figure out which debates actually matter. But we were very fortunate last week to catch up with one of Washington's leading journalists who gives us a really good read on what's happening in that city and its political culture. That's Dan Lipman. He's a reporter with Politico. He covers the White House in Washington. Before that, he was the co-author of Politico's Playbook, number one political newsletter in Washington. Few reporters know the political culture of Washington better than Dan. Listen up. Dan, what is it like to do that particular beat as a journalist?
1: It feels all-encompassing because uh, it's a nonstop job, uh, and it's constant reaching out to sources, uh, making new connections, uh, keeping alive my relationships with my current uh, official sources and my former officials uh, and people in the think tank community. Uh, and you know other influencers, um, and it's also you have to promote yourself too. You have to um, sending tweets sometimes that I write myself to um, you know about scoops uh, of mine to uh, influential journalists so they can retweet them sometimes, and TV bookers uh, so that I can get on you know MSNBC or CNN or BBC. Um, that's a much smaller part of the job. I think the most important thing is to break news and to find out stuff that. Hasn't been reported on before, and so I try to stay off Twitter as much as I can, actually, uh, during the day. Because if it's already out there on Twitter, then uh, then it has not. It, then there isn't for much for me to contribute to the conversation. Uh, you know, I want to break stuff that is not out there, and so that's kind of my role
2: and my remit from my bosses. So on the one hand quite old-fashioned. You know, you're looking for scoops, you're being investigative, but as you say, you're doing it up against Twitter. So how do you do that? I
1: think it's because I'm seen as a, um, kind of a, a trustworthy, honest broker, uh, which is the, it's actually what the National Security Council is supposed to be. Uh, mm-hmm. it probably, it really is not uh, in this administration, uh, or at least in, you know, this, uh, you know, in the last year or so. But the, uh, the way I, I go about it is if neither side thinks that I'm conservative or liberal, or if they think I'm, you know, a member of the other party or their party or whatever, it doesn't really matter because I don't really, I I don't think in terms of, oh, is this story going to help the Democrats or help Trump or help the Republicans or hurt them? It's more about, is this a good story? And um, is it accurate? And so that's kind of uh, the role I play in uh, the democracy here uh, and preserving it uh, in a time when it's definitely is under strain it's not about being an activist. And so if I wanted to be an activist, I could have done that. Um, But I think, you know, the fourth estate, as it's called that, you know, we play an important role in kind of digging up stuff that has never gotten reported on. And
2: so that's kind
1: of why I wake up in the morning. (laughs)
2: Okay. And I recall uh, some time ago reading that you used to wake up extremely early to do playbook. Uh, Are you getting a bit more rest these days?
1: I am. So I used to get up between three thirty and four a.m. for to you know co-write playbook uh, for five years. Uh, that ended. Uh, my my job on it ended uh, more than a year ago. And so I've been really enjoying my beauty sleep.
2: Playbook, I'm sure, is known by many of our listeners. But for those who aren't, it, it's the number one political newsletter in Washington, I think it's fair to say. Um, and that means that not only do you are close to the ground, but I, I assume that that gives you something that's gold for, for journalists, which is access uh, in this day and age. And I can't help wondering about what that access is like via the Trump administration. So let me put it to you. You may not say this, but looking from the outside, that's a fairly dysfunctional White House. May I ask you, does it look so dysfunctional when you're up close?
1: It definitely does in some respects, but there are still systems in place, and there's a number of people in the administration uh, who are, you know, trying to do the right thing uh, and are competent in their jobs. Uh, and so, it's not the I would say the majority of people are sometimes in jobs that are, you know, above where they should be because there's a lot of uh, there's been a lot of turnover, people leaving, uh, and a lot of people signed those anti-Trump letters, and so they were blacklisted. Uh, by the Presidential Personnel Office uh, and by Trump himself, but you know people still get back to reporters. There are still uh, processes in terms of uh, regulation uh, and you know the judges and various uh, important government matters that have to kind of run on time and uh, without leaks. Uh, and so they are still able to get the the functioning the you know bureaucratic functioning of government proceeds the pace, but there is still definitely a lot of chaos. Do you still have that type of relationship
0: where you feel like I wouldn't say, never say trust, but at least there's an element that you can get business done by talking to government folks on both sides of the media equation, both for the sake of what you're reporting on and for basically trying to keep the politics organized?
1: Definitely, I feel like a level of trust with uh, a number of my sources uh, because it's a mutual transaction, um, and you just get to know people over the uh, over the years of covering them uh, and their jobs uh, and what they're up to, and so. It's um, something that you kind of have to develop. It doesn't come naturally as much because there is a suspicion of the media uh, in some quarters of the Trump administration or m- many quarters. Uh, but you, uh, people recognize that both of us have jobs to do. And so uh, that's been able to facilitate stories and articles and uh, stuff that we kind of, that our mutual interests align. Um, in terms of the functioning of, uh, the you know government, in terms of trust, like a lot of people in the administration they don't trust each other sometimes, and they especially during a pandemic where you haven't even met uh if you're new to an agency and or a department you don't you don't know as many of the people you don't go into the office very much uh, unless you're in the White House where you're kind of encouraged to go but there's still lots of work to be done uh and especially with fewer people in important jobs. That leads lower level people to pick up the slack.
0: Let me follow that up then. I mean, because if you, you know, at the strata of the Trump administration, we had the whole thing about anonymous, about the groups within that would try to put pressure on the highest levels by leaking. But even putting that to the side, we have had a series of stories which are based not on former officials, but on officials who were still serving, who even if unnamed whether it be on immigration, whether it be on issues like health care, whether it be on the recent stories of what's been happening with the CDC and its guidance being suppressed by Trump's political appointees. I mean, to what extent is this unusual, which is the number of stories which have come out to reporters from serving officials who probably are just disconcerted by what they see as being the wrong trend of the government that they are officially an employee of?
1: Yeah, I always want more of those stories. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, if there's any current officials out there, my email is just daniel at com.
0: <laughs> Fair enough.
1: And so what's also interesting was since I put my cell phone on my Twitter bio, I've gotten a number of good stories off of that. Uh, right. And so people yeah. just feel more comfortable signaling uh, you know, through that secure app uh, or texting you uh, instead of reaching out by email or you know, by secure email. Uh, and so I almost wish I'd put that on there. I definitely wish I'd put that on there five years ago when I first started Politico.
2: Can I ask you a question in line with uh, those thoughts on on, on Washington today and the White House? Um, There is a perspective that uh, Donald Trump has taken something of a wrecking ball. Uh, to political culture and particularly to political institutions in the United States and to conventions. But looking at it from Washington, I mean, how broken are things? I mean, let, let let's say that uh, President Trump has to walk away in November, <laughs> whatever that might mean. I mean, uh, what sort of state is the China shop in?
1: Pretty broken down, actually. The there's the insurance companies are not going to be happy with the uh, uh, the bull in the China shop's uh, handiwork, uh, and so are a lot of civil servants have left the administration. Uh, so it's not just political Appointees who have uh, changed jobs or um, kind of shifted around. Uh, it's those people who have served in government for a decade, two decades, three decades, uh, who, are, who are just tired of the, the chaos and they don't like to see um, themselves be labeled as part of the deep state. And uh, it's just not a good working environment sometimes or often in a number of di- different departments. That's not to say that there aren't good departments or agencies where. Uh, there is political leadership that takes their job seriously. Uh, but that's sometimes a few and far between. And so they I expect some of those civil servants to come back. And the Biden administration is going to reverse a lot of the stuff that the Trump administration had done uh, within uh, their capacity. But there's a lot of stuff that Trump has done, especially with environmental rules, where there's a process that they just have to go through. And so they can't just start from scratch and say, we're just going to wipe away everything the Trump administration has done. Even though Trump has not followed those federal procedures for rulemaking as closely as he should have in in a number of cases, in a number of different ones, they actually have. That... Uh, take a number of years for them to actually do that, Uh, and for new things, then there's only a limited bandwidth that they can actually accomplish stuff.
2: Just going to look forward a, a little bit in your crystal ball or crystal bubble in Washington, there's a lot of apprehension about this election, not just which way it might go if you're aligned with one political team, but the uncertainty that it might even get decided within a day or within a few days, that we may not have a peaceful transition. I wouldn't have thought I would find myself saying this four years ago, but people are getting alarmed are they getting alarmed in Washington? What are you seeing?
1: Even if Trump is
2: reelected, America is not going to fall apart.
1: It will exact another four years of damage to our institutions, but America will still produce people that want to uh, kind of take over the world in terms of technology and business and all of that. Uh, and it's not like Trump's going to have a third term. So he does recognize there are term limits. There, There's a constitution. You might not have read that constitution. But, but I do think that if it's a Biden landslide and it looks like that's increasingly the case. If states like Florida or North Carolina, they get decided, uh, for Biden, then it doesn't really matter what the other states do because it's not like Trump is going to steal New York or California. And so the network, Fox News or others, uh, AP, uh, would call it for Biden on that night or on the next day. Uh, and then we would be, uh, we would not have to face, you know, weeks and court, months of court battles. And so, uh, it could actually be a short night if uh, Biden does well in uh, a number of those uh, key states that are big and have lots of electoral
2: college votes. Dan, thanks. It's a positive reading. You heard it here, folks. America's not going to fall apart. Dan Lippman, a reporter with Politico, thanks for your insights and in covering the White House and Washington during these extraordinary times. Thank you.
0: This has been the second episode in the second season of the American Filtered podcast. Thank you all for listening. Make sure you keep doing so on your favorite podcast platform. Stay up to date with us with the latest analysis and commentary via American Unfiltered on social media, the American Filtered newsletter, and of course the American Filtered website at ucdclinton.ie. Stay safe. Be decent to each other until we meet again.